Let me say again uh, what an honor it is to have you ladies and uh, the, the men and women who, who lead in this ministry. We are, we are so uh, privileged to have you all with us today. Thank you for the part that you've played in worship. And our time in worship has been so much sweeter because of what you all have shared today. And brother, you come back and we'll just give you the pulpit. Thank you. You can tell a man who's fired, fired up and ready to preach. That was good stuff. Uh, Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me if you will, please. I'm going to be sharing a message with you today that's, uh, that's fairly simple, and yet it's vitally important because it's the thing that enables us to stay together, really together as a family of faith. And actually it's this principle that we'll talk about today that has enabled us as a country to stay together in spite of how diverse we are. Now, I want to begin today, before we read the, the scripture, with asking you just a series of questions. And I don't want you to answer out loud. That would, that would be chaos, as you're about to see. But uh, I, want you to really, I want you to just think quickly what your answers are to each of these questions. And I want you to think hyper-spiritually. I just want you to be honest in your own heart what you think about each of these issues. Are you ready? I'm going to give you a bunch. Like I said, just answer to yourself. Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? And if so, is it okay to do it in public? You don't have to answer out loud now. Just, just keep, this, keep these to yourself. Is it all right to play the lottery? Is it okay for Christians to have tattoos? And if so, lots of them. How about uh, body piercings? Is that okay? Is it okay to use birth control? Is it a good thing for Christians to go to rated R movies? Is it all right to gamble? Is it okay to go to the casinos? Is there anything wrong with dancing or going to a club? Is it all right to marry or date interracially? Is it okay as a part of your celebration of Christmas to have Santa Claus and Christmas trees or to celebrate the resurrection with Easter eggs and Easter bunnies? Is it a sin to cross-dress? Is it wrong to listen to secular music? Is it a sin to smoke? Which translation of the Bible are we supposed to use? Which one are we supposed to actually use? What's the appropriate way to dress for worship? What's fitting for us to have on our bodies when we come in here? What's the right kind of music that you should use in worship? What's the most fitting? What's the most pleasing to God? Are you beginning to get my drift? Are you getting a feel for the the length of list of questions that we could ask that can become very controversial. Now, here's the thing that I want you to consider. That was a pretty good starting list of of questions. Do you know what every single one of those questions have in common? The New Testament doesn't address a single one of those issues. Now, everybody in this room has got strong opinions about at least some portion of those questions, right? I mean, some part of what I ask, you may have said, I don't really care one way or the other. But some portion of the questions that I ask, you've got strong feelings about, don't you? And yet, here's the catch. There's not one question that I just asked that the New Testament talks about. So here's the deal. We've got to be very, very careful that we don't let our feelings and our opinions about things that are outside the Scriptures cause us to become so rigid that we can't have close, intimate fellowship and friendship with people who have different opinions. It's a real problem. 
I don't know of any bigger problem in, a, in the church in America than this. People stay mad at each other. They get divided up into camps over non-essential issues and it just paralyzes the church because people get mad and want to fight about things that Jesus didn't find worthwhile to even say anything about to be recorded in the scriptures. That's a problem. And that is not going to be who we are as Freedom Church. Amen? Well... I want us to look together at what Paul had to say about this. Now, I'm going to go ahead and warn you on the front end. It's a long passage, but don't get nervous. A longer passage isn't going to equal a longer sermon. This is going to be a real straight... Yeah, some of you would be sweating that. It won't. It's going to be real straightforward today. We're going to begin in verse 1 of Romans 14 where Paul says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. All of these that I just read are disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let me pause for just a moment right there, because you may be saying... What's up with eating meat, eating vegetables? Just remember this. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome in the first century. Now, wherever the gospel spread to around the Mediterranean, in each city, many of the initial people who would come to faith in Christ would be those who had some frame of reference about who the true God is. And so it would be Jews who would be a part of the original congregation, the original family of faith in most every community, including Rome. But... Jews also would get hung up on the law, and so a lot of them would reject the message of Christ. And so Gentiles would come in as well, and so you'd have this mixed bag, Jews and Gentiles. And they would have this one major dividing point from the get-go. As good Jews, they had always been trained in the law, and so much of the law revolved around dietary rules. You can't eat this, you can't eat that, and rules about the Sabbath and the special holy days. And so as as these Jews became Christians, they were still tied up with that. That, well, I'm a follower of Jesus now, but I've still got all these rules I've got to keep. I can't eat certain things, and I can't eat other things, and I've got to make sure I observe the right days. And these Gentile Christians are saying, what's that all about? Jesus never talked about that stuff. Jesus never told us we've got to observe these days and avoid these foods. You know, and so they wind up judging each other and not getting along, and that's what Paul's talking about. And so he continues in verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another, and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now before I read on, let me just point out one other issue that had been very controversial in multiple cities. And it goes back to to diet stuff about how they ate. But in 
Each of these cities, there was all kinds of pagan religion, all kinds of sacrifices were being made to idols. And so people who had been caught up in that system, they would see all these animals that would be butchered as sacrifices to idols and pagan gods. But then the meat would be sold in the meat markets. And so there were a lot of people who had previously been in those religions who felt like, ooh, that meat was suddenly now tainted. It was like spiritually bad, so we can't eat that meat. You have to avoid that. And then other more mature believers came along and said, don't worry about where the meat came from. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to the meat market, buy meat. Don't ask where it came from from and just enjoy it if it's been sacrificed to some idol that's just a stick of wood or a piece of metal it doesn't do anything to the meat don't worry about it but these other people are just freaked out no we we've got to be careful we've got to know the source we've got to know where it came from we couldn't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols and so here's another big controversy about what people eat and so paul continues on therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. You may need to underline that in your Bible because I promise you, if you haven't yet, you will run into legalistic Christians who have gone back and bought into this same old Jewish ritual and and legalism that says, oh no, these are all the foods that God doesn't want us to eat. Paul's very clear. I am fully convinced that no food is unclean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him, it is unclean. We'll come back to that. Now, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, such as eating meat sacrificed to an idol, then you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. A key principle here. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That is worthy of underlining. Whatever you believe about this stuff that's matters of opinion, said you'd just be better off if you just keep that between you and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And he continues on. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's that's a long passage, 
But the heart of this is actually quite simple, and it's critically important for us to hold on to, to what he's saying. I'm just going to share this in six thoughts that one builds on the other. Very easy to understand. Follow along with me in your outline. He begins with a very simple thing that we all get, and that is that Christians are bound to disagree on non-essential issues. Isn't that the truth? We're just bound to disagree. He says, welcome the person who's weak in faith, but not in order to argue about differences of opinion. One person believes in eating everything while the weak person eats only vegetables. One person considers some days to be more sacred than others, while another person considers all days to be the same. Each person must have their own convictions. I love what Paul's saying there. You ought to get together. You ought to welcome everyone. You shouldn't let all these petty little differences divide you. There's room in the body of Christ for people with diversity of opinions. Now, when you think about how diverse our opinions are, I've just begin, begun to give a beginning point of, of all the different things that we hold opinions over. I mean, I haven't touched on politics at all yet. I mean, think about how quickly we get crossways with each other over political issues. I mean, we could just throw out just two or three words or phrases and immediately they'd just be polarizing. Illegal immigration. How are we supposed to solve that? Woo! There's a lot of opinions about that, aren't there? How are we going to deal with that? What's the best way to address the issue of terrorism? How are we supposed to respond to the appeal of refugees coming in our country? I mean, just fundamental issues of who to vote for and what side you align with, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And I mean, you'll hear people just become so rigid and bowed up. They'll say, I can't believe that a Democrat can even be a Christian. It's like, well, there are Democrats who think it'd be hard to be a Republican and be a Christian. And the thing that's ridiculous is either position. Looking at the other and saying, I can't believe that you could vote this way and be a Christian. Guess what? Christians can be a lot of different things and still be followers of Christ. And that's a good thing. We need a diversity of people within the body of Christ. And I'm just going to throw in this for no extra charge. We need diversity among our government leaders. Now, nobody gets excited about that because everybody wants to fall in some camp and feel like we need everybody in Congress and everybody in the executive branch to be either a conservative or to be a liberal. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, within the body of Christ, within our country, and even within the government, we need people from both sides at the same time. Because neither side's got it all figured out. Neither side's got it all right. And there's not anybody in the room, certainly not the preacher, who's got it all figured out and got it right. And there needs to be room for a difference of opinion. You see, it's not just about having a difference of opinion. The truth of the matter is, different ones of us have got things right. I mean, even within the world of politics, Christians in the Bible Belt, we tend to migrate in larger numbers, toward conservative thinking. That makes a lot of Christians good Republicans. There's nothing wrong with that. I certainly appreciate how people from within the Republican side of things always work against government being too big and not wanting spending to be out of control and retaining states' rights and those kinds of things. That's important. But on the Democratic side of things, there are people who hold on to very important ideals as well, particularly concerns for those who are in need, taking care of the needs of the poor. There are people from different camps who hold on to important ideals. And the point is this, 
It's okay to have different opinions on non-essential issues. We are going to have difference of opinion, and that should be welcomed because diversity makes us stronger, not weaker. Are you with me? (laughs) We're not fully convinced yet, but we'll get there. Paul goes on to say in verse 22, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I, I love that. I love that he's just being practical and saying, you've just got all kinds of opinions about all kinds of issues, and most of them it's fine for you to have. Why don't you just keep most of them to yourself? Just talk about them at home, because the truth of the matter is, when we feel like we need to convince everybody else that our position is the right one on a disputable matter, you know what winds up happening. We get crossways and mad at each other, don't we? That brings us to the next point that he makes, and that is that we must refuse to pass judgment on believers who differ from us on disputable matters. He says, those who eat must not look down on those who don't, and those who, the ones who don't eat must not judge the ones who do, because God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? They stand or fall before their own Lord. So stop judging each other. You follow what he's saying, don't you? He says, here we've got two different camps of people. We've got people who by nature are legalistic. Do you know any legalists today? Do you know any people who are legalistic? He's saying, the legalists love to judge the people who don't live by a legalistic list and say, shame on you. You should be a better Christian. When you grow in your faith more, you'll do more of the things on my list, right? That's how a legalist thinks. And so the legalist is judging the person who's living with freedom. But he says the flip side is true as well. Because the person who he says is more mature, who isn't living under legalism, is now judging those who do and saying, you are so immature. You are so immature in your faith that you are thinking that it's all about a list. And so he says, you go around judging each other and not getting along. You have to choose not to pass judgments. I love what St. Augustine, who is one of the most significant of the church early church fathers, how he put it. He says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Let's take a second and unpack that thought. When he says, in essentials, unity, that's critically important for us, isn't it? Because we do have to agree on the essentials. Don't hear me incorrectly saying today, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe about anything. That's not the case at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. We've got to be unified on the essentials. Amen? We've got to agree on the basics. What are the basics? Well, here's most of them. Here's a pretty good list of them. There is one true living God. He has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This one God is the creator of everything that exists. He created it by His powerful spoken word. This God has always ruled over the universe. His power is unmatched. This one God has revealed Himself in many ways, including through nature, but He has specifically revealed Himself through the scriptures of the Christian Bible and most specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. This God, God the Son, the one and only begotten Son of God the Father, came to earth 2,000 years ago. He was born as a man, fully God and fully human. And this God-man lived for 33 and a half years on earth, a sinless life. And after that time, he offered himself up as a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was 
physically tortured and murdered, nailed to a cross, and he truly bled out and died. He was buried, and on the third day he arose from the dead. He has now ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there is a date coming in the future, appointed by God, when he will return to the earth to reclaim those who have placed their faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. There is only one way to be made right with God, and that is through faith in Jesus, confessing our sin, and receiving Jesus as Lord. Those who do that are accepted into the family of God and will reign with Him forever in heaven. Those are the essentials. Agreed? If we don't agree on those things, that we have to talk about. That we have to work through. If you and I can agree on those things, and it's not hard to agree on those... You, you pick your flavor. Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Church of God, Assembly of God, you, you name it. The Christian church agrees on the essentials that I just named. In essentials, unity, agreement. But in non-essentials, liberty, freedom. Freedom to believe what your heart believes is right. So when it gets down to the details, whether it be of, of issues of, of faith and doctrine, you know, people ask me, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Or do you believe that people can lose their salvation? You know what? I don't care what you believe about that. I have an opinion. But that's not an essential. For me, it's not. We need to agree on how we get there, and we need to make sure that every day we're seeking to follow Christ. I don't really care whether you believe in eternal security or not. Well, what about predestination? What about election? What about it? I believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God. And whether I had a part to play in that or it was all of God really doesn't matter. I don't care what you believe about that. I have an opinion, and it's nothing more than an opinion. What we believe about drinking and smoking and dancing and gambling and all of those things, they're just opinions. And we may hold some of those opinions very strongly. They may be very deep convictions for us. But we must agree that what the New Testament does not address cannot become for us points that we judge other spirituality by. Are we in agreement on that? In non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity, love, compassion, and understanding. That means that we, we realize that when these issues do from time to time arise, and we hear somebody who has a completely different opinion, or by their lifestyle, they're demonstrating that they feel the freedom to do something that we feel like no Christian should do because it would damage their testimony that we don't get to sit back and go, I cannot believe them. I can't believe that sister calls herself a Christian. Goes over to the Beau Ravage, pulling that one-armed bandit, eating off that buffet, calls herself a Christian. Now I'm kind of poking fun at us, but you know we do that kind of stuff. We have to choose not to judge one another in all things charity. The third point that he makes is this, and this is the really good news. Increasing spiritual maturity will lead to increasing freedom in life. Philip, I'm going to ask you all to do me a favor back in the back. That clock has died and it has thrown me off sorely. I think I've got more time than I've got. <laughs> do everybody a favor and move that thing up see if you can get it working. Because otherwise, I'm just going to get to preach forever because it's a quarter to 11 by that clock back there. 
<laughs> Thank you, Forrest. <laughs> increasing spiritual maturity will lead to increasing freedom in life. I, I thought I was just in a time warp here, and God was just giving me just an ability to get it said quickly, and that's not happening. This really is good news. He says, you know, some think it's all right to eat anything while those whose faith is weak will eat only vegetables. The Lord Jesus has made it clear to me that God considers all foods uh, fit to eat. You catch the point that he's making there. Paul, at different points, is saying, I'm among the more mature. And he certainly was. And Paul is the one who's saying, look, it's no longer about a list of, you know, you can't eat this and you can't eat that. But he says... Yes, it, it is the less mature who've got this long list of everything you've got to do that makes you a Christian. The more you grow up in your faith, the less you live by a list. The list just gets shorter and shorter, and that's good news. I can remember, oh my goodness, I mean, I, I, I kind of hate to even have to admit this. I spent the first 10 or 20 years of my Christian life as big a legalist as you'll ever find. My faith, as much as anything, was defined by all the things... We weren't supposed to do as Christians, right? You know, we're not supposed to cuss. We're not supposed to drink. We're not supposed to smoke. We're not supposed to chew. We're not supposed to date non-Christians. We're not, 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 not. You know, it's just all these things that defined us by the don'ts. And it's funny how many of the things on that list were things that Jesus never talked about. I remember so vividly being a teenager and uh, the, the guy uh, who was... We didn't call him a worship pastor back in those days. He was the song leader. (laughs) The guy who was the song leader in our church also doubled as kind of the youth guy. And we had gone on just a little day church trip, a youth trip. And uh, we're on the old church bus. And Jim was his name. And Jim decides to stir the pot a little bit. And the issue of gambling came up. And being the hyper-spiritual legalist that I was, I'm quick to say, gambling is just wrong. That's just a sin. And he decided to just push back a little bit. And he said, is that right? Where in the Bible did, did you learn that? I'm like, well, well, I don't know, but it's a sin. No Christian is supposed to be gambling. And he said, well, you know, explain that to me. Tell me where Jesus talked about that. Or, you know, help me understand from the Bible how I'm supposed to have the conviction that, that gambling is always wrong. And, and, you know, I just kept saying, well, it's just, you just know it's wrong. It's just not right. Well, what makes it not right? Well, we're not supposed to do it. That's what makes it. You know, and he just kept pushing me. Well, help me see from the scriptures what's not right about that. And I just got madder and madder. Now, as an adult, I can look back and appreciate what he was doing. He was helping me to have to wrestle with the fact that my convictions, my deep convictions need to be tied to the scriptures. They need to be tied to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and what they don't talk about I need to address and hold on to very carefully. When it really gets down to it, the more mature you become in your faith, the simpler Christianity becomes. Wouldn't you agree with that? The Christianity is no longer about this long list of rules. Christianity really begins to boil down to a few things like this. It's about loving God with every part of your being. And it's about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's about learning to show mercy instead of bringing judgment. It's about seeking justice for others who are being mistreated. It's about learning to be generous with what we have. It's about learning to work and produce and be generous with that rather than to steal. 
It's about always being honest instead of being a liar. It's about learning to be faithful and to protect the relationships that matter. Guarding confidences, guarding the hearts of those who trusted us, guarding our integrity in marriage, guarding the sanctity of the marriage bed, those kinds of things. It really boils down to a handful of of virtues and core concepts instead of a long list, doesn't it? The more we grow in our faith, the more freedom we have. Not freedom to live wildly, but freedom to no longer live under legalism. Freedom to simply follow Christ and the leadership of His Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3 concludes with a theme verse for our church. It says, to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, that is the the covenant of the law, the list of the rules, when that's being read, the same veil covers their minds so they can't understand the truth. And yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? That's why we're named what we're named. Because a church that is filled with people who follow the leadership of the Spirit live in freedom. We're not running around being spiritual private detectives, checking on each other to see if you've been a good enough Christian to be my brother or sister. We don't need that. We've got the Holy Ghost. He's capable of convicting those within the body of Christ. I love how Paul put it. He said, so why are you bothering to judge somebody else's servant? He'll answer to his own master. He's like... You know, if you're a business owner, why would you worry about some other business owner's employee and the job that they're doing? It ain't your job to do that. You worry about your own business. We'll all answer to our own master, the Lord Jesus. There's a fourth point that he makes, and that is where it begins to get tricky. That we must not use our freedom in ways that cause others to stumble. He says, decide instead... To live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Now, we've just said we have tremendous freedom as we grow in our faith. But he's saying, be careful that you don't use that freedom in a way that's going to mess somebody else up. He says, and if another believer is distressed by what you eat or by what you do, you're not acting in love if you eat. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. It is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. Now, this is where the issue becomes much more complex. This is where you're going to have to think. This is where you're going to have to to be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm just going to go out on a limb and now get specific about some of the issues that I've just sort of put out there for you to think about. I asked the question on the front end. Is it in and of itself wrong for a Christian to drink alcohol? Now, I'm going out on them because most everybody's got an opinion about this. From the scriptures, it is not a sin to drink alcohol. If God had wanted to say that, he would have said it. We need to be real careful not to go back and rewrite the scriptures. In more than 1,200 pages of scripture, if God wanted to say it's a sin to take a drink, he would have said it. He did not. He said it's a sin to be drunk. And there is a religion that if you want the legalistic version of things that you can't drink and you can't have caffeine and women, you can't expose any skin, that's called Islam. And we are not of that group. We are followers of Jesus where there is liberty. The scriptures don't say that it's a sin to have a drink. 
But here's where things get really tricky. And oh, by the way, I spent all my life growing up thinking the people who drank were going to hell. That there was no excuse for a Christian to drink. It took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that the scriptures don't teach that it's a sin to have a drink. But here's where it gets tricky. In Paul's day, they were hung up on whether or not you could eat pork or these previously unclean animals that... In the New Testament, Jesus has declared clean, but they're still tangled up on that. Well, in our day, that's not what we're, we're struggling over. One of the biggest single ethical issues that Christians get crossways with each other over is alcohol. And the difficulty in what Paul is saying is it's not a sin in and of itself for a Christian to have a drink, but it is a sin to have a drink in front of someone for whom that is a problem. If I have a drink in front of someone who either struggles with alcohol or with a Christian brother who believes that it's wrong for Christians to drink and for whom I would be a stumbling block for them to see me as not only a Christian brother but as a pastor having a drink in front of them. If I'm doing that in front of somebody who Paul says is the weaker brother and if I then become a stumbling block for them in that moment it's wrong for me to have a drink. You see why this gets complicated all of a sudden? I'll give you another one that's very much present day. Is it a sin for a woman to wear a skirt that falls above the knee? Well, if it is, God didn't say so in his word. He certainly could have. Just like drinking. He didn't say that was a sin. Is it a sin to be an inch above the knee? Doesn't say. How about three inches? How about four inches? Doesn't say. There's freedom within the body of Christ, within Christianity, for a woman to dress in a way that she feels comfortable and in a way that complements her body. And we can probably all agree on that. You know, that's a good thing. But somewhere along the way, I think we all realize that this stuff that gets up here, that it doesn't take but about a little bit of a breeze and suddenly she's going to show us where babies come from if she's not careful because that skirt is so short you know what i'm talking about the bible doesn't say that that's a sin but we all know every man in the room that's a stumbling block amen yeah yeah that got it right there that's not legalism that's exactly what paul is talking about ladies we love you We love every curve that God gave to you. Cover some of them up. Do us a favor. Help us out. Help a brother out. That's not legalism. That's compassion and concern for the weaker brother. And every man is the weaker brother. And so we would appreciate a couple of extra inches of of skirt length down there just because of our weakness. This is where it's not black and white. It's not... Just simple cut and dried stuff. It's where he's saying, you're going to have to be thoughtful. You're going to have to consider who you're around. And something that may be totally okay for you in certain circumstances on a given day with a certain set of other people around you that you're going to have to choose to say, I'm not going to wear that or I'm not going to do that or I'm not going to drink that because I'm concerned about causing somebody else to stumble and I don't want to do that. I'm going to chase a rabbit for just one second here. (laughs) Yeah. If you're on Facebook or other social media, at the risk of sounding legalistic, 
please stop posting your pictures of whatever booze you had to drink last night. Because everybody gets to see that. And you're going to have a hard time posting that and not being a stumbling block for somebody out there. I don't care what you had to drink last night. It doesn't worry me. It doesn't upset me. It does bother me that we feel the freedom to post whatever bar we felt like we wanted to go to and whatever booze we wanted to drink. That is not helping your weaker brothers and sisters. It's just not. And if I sound like a legalist, pray for me. But you just have to get that at some point, when we post all this stuff for the whole world to see, that we're being naive at best to think that we're not tripping somebody up with some of, some of that stuff. So when you're in those places where you know you're kind of going to the edge of just enjoying your Christian freedom, don't take a selfie while you're doing it. Just enjoy it with you and Jesus and your spouse. But please, don't post it for the whole world, okay? And you and, you know, it's what Paul said. Whatever you feel about that, keep it between you and God, not between you, God, and Facebook. Because at that point, there's more than you and God involved. Amen? Moving right along. Galatians 5.13, he says, For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Fifth thing he says, or teaches, is that if a person believes that something is wrong, then it is wrong for him or her. I'm not going to take a long time on this, but it's important that you get this principle. He says, I know that there's no food that's wrong to eat. In and of itself, every food is okay. But if a person believes that something is wrong, that thing is wrong for him. Those who eat something without being sure it's right are wrong because they didn't believe it was right. Anything that is done without believing that it is right, it's a sin. Now, here's the thing that I want to make sure that you understand in this. Paul is absolutely not teaching moral relativism. We all know what moral relativism is, don't you? It, it rules the day, by the way. The world believes in moral relativism. Moral relativism says if you believe it's okay for you, then it's okay for you. And if you think it's wrong for you, then it's wrong for you. Paul is not teaching that. He's only teaching the second half of that. What he's saying is, if, if you think that it's wrong to, to play the lottery, then it's wrong for you to play the lottery. That's one of those things that I wrestled with, by the way, because I've always hated the lottery. I've always hated gambling, as I, as I said. And I finally had to come to terms with the fact, I'll hate gambling for as long as I live, but it's a political, social, and economic conviction. It's not a religious conviction. The lottery is a tax on the poor. And if you study it and the people who are behind it, it's hard to ever support it. That's, a, that's just a personal thing. That is not a religious conviction. But if you believe that the lottery is wrong, then for you it would be a sin to play it. I don't think it's morally wrong. I just think it's a dumb idea. That's why I don't play it. But you know, if, if you think it's wrong, it's a sin for you to do it. If you don't think it's wrong, it's not a sin for you to do it. It's just a waste of your money. But the thing that he's not saying here is the reverse of that. You see, logic might want to turn that around and say, okay, well that means if you think it's right, then that makes anything all right. wrong -o. If I think you're stupid and you need to just you know, be shut up so I can punch you out to shut you up when you're speaking your opinion, does that make me right because I think it's right? Well, I can think that while they put the handcuffs on me and take me down to the county lockup. Of course not. It's never right to murder. 
It's never right to to be unjust toward others. It's never right for a married man or woman to have sex with somebody that they're not married to. It's not ever right to have sex before marriage. The, The scriptures speak to those. The New Testament again and again and again speaks to those issues. And it doesn't matter what you believe about them because the word of God has spoken. And so what you think has nothing to do with it. Paul's talking about the things that the scripture doesn't speak to. And he says, when you have a conviction about something that the Scripture hasn't addressed, you better live by your conviction because if you don't, you're sinning because you're not acting in faith. Here's the kind of funny side of what he's saying. You might be wrong in your opinion, but because it is your conviction, you better live by it. Make sense? All right, one final thing and we're done. Our choices should always protect and build up those around us. Primary concern, honoring the Lord and protecting and building up those around us. He says, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. This is the heart of the matter. We have been freed from the law. We live as free people. It's, it, you understand, don't you, that the freedoms that we enjoy as a nation and that we celebrate this weekend, the concepts of freedom that are so distinctly American are actually Christian. This is where our faith is the bedrock. It is the backbone of who we are as a country. The concepts of freedom that define us as a nation didn't just come from some political idealists. They came from strong believers. It is Christ who has made us free. But we must not ever use our freedoms to our advantage, to the harm of others. So we must use our freedoms in a way that build others up, that strengthen others, not that take advantage of situations. And he concludes by saying, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Now this thing of accepting one another doesn't come natural to us. A lot of us are born by nature looking for our differences. And in looking for our differences, let me just throw this in before I'm done here. Don't ever, ever fall into the trap of playing the game of, I'm going to go back and select something from the Old Testament law and apply this in New Testament Christianity. The scripture doesn't work that way. You either get all the law or you live under the covenant of grace. Because we can nitpick. We can go back and say, there's one verse in Leviticus about tattoos. So all you tattooed people, you're a bunch of sinners. Well, guess what? If you're going to hold on to what Leviticus says about tattoos, you've got to hold on to everything Leviticus says and everything that Exodus says. And you don't want to go there. Because that means we've got to put you to death today if you're going to live by that. Because everybody who disobeys their parents has to be put to death. Everybody needs to pull out the tags on their shirt and make sure you don't have on a cotton polyester blend because two materials can't be mixed together in any article of clothing. I mean, the law is oppressive. And you either take it all and you live as a good Jew under the law or you live under the covenant of grace where there's room for us to look different and act different but to love and follow Jesus together and to be committed to work at this thing of saying, I know you don't see 
politics and life exactly like I do, but we are united in this. Jesus is our Lord, and we live to advance his reputation and the kingdom of God here on earth. And as long as we're doing that together, all this other stuff is so unimportant. Amen? Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to relate to us out of a heart of grace and mercy, and that you call us to true freedom. For that we say thank you. Thank you that you have set us free from the weight of our sin in Christ. And I thank you that you have not freed us up to now follow an ever-lengthening list of rules. We thank you that with the passing of time, that as we grow in our faith, Jesus, that it just becomes simpler. That we are living to please you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause our hearts to come alive. That you would break the shackles of legalism in us and of judgmentalism. And and we today confess that as sin. We've all done it. God, would you forgive us? I want to just ask you right now to just be very honest with God and yourself. If you recognize that there's been a situation or maybe a person that you've been legalistic and judgmental toward. Would you just ask God to forgive you? And to enable you to just love and accept the way that Jesus would. And maybe you realize, maybe because of the way that you were brought up, it's a good chance that's what caused it. But maybe you realize you've just been living under the weight of just the yoke of legalism and rules. Needing to do more so God would love you more. Would you just ask God right now to lift that yoke off of you? And to enable you to walk in freedom and love. Father, thank you for loving us like you do. May a spirit of freedom and compassion rule in this place. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.